Hello and welcome to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. Hi and welcome to this episode of the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast and today we're going to be talking about all things Bridgerton related which has probably been a long time coming we're a little bit late on this bandwagon but all of us are big Bridgerton fans and <laughs> or fans of Bridgerton to some extent and uh, we thought it would be a very interesting opportunity to talk through some of the kind of visual material cultures of the show and the way in which the show engages the visual material cultures of the past which it references. So I think we're going to talk about things around fashion in Bridgerton and the fashion that it inspires, um, some of the commercial side and uh, the art that's in the show as well. So Maddie, do you want to kick us off? I think we all kind of come at a show like Bridgerton from slightly different angles. We've all got our own specialisms and like any period drama, when we see them on screen, we sort of get overly excited about them and want to kind of critique or expand on on what we are seeing on screen. So I wanted to think a little bit about some of the artworks that we see on screen and the ways that Bridgerton, like a lot of period dramas, uses various works whether that's miniatures whether it's oil portraits to kind of encode different meanings both in terms of the plot but also in terms of historical validity or as a way of showing how it plays with that history so one of the one of the things that I love that any period drama does is when and this is it's sort of terrible and I love it because it's terrible is when a period drama creates a portrait of an actor playing a particular character in the show and this, these are usually reproduction oil paintings sometimes a real artist is employed to create them sometimes they're kind of done digitally I think and and some work really well and some are genuinely terrible and I think we can all think of examples um, my favorite example is in the completely wild 1990s Wuthering Heights with Ray Fiennes and Juliette Binoche. And there's a, the, like a full-length portrait of Juliette Binoche as Kathy once she's, once she's deceased in the story. And it's just, it's intense. It's amazing. If anyone hasn't seen that, go and check it out. But Bridgerton does this quite a lot in different ways. So in this latest season, we see the portrait of the, the Bridgerton father, What's interesting, I think, about how works like this um, kind of operate on screen, specifically in the case of the the dad in Bridgerton, is that they're a way to make visible characters that are absent for various reasons, whether they are um, missing or abroad or just part of an action that's happening off stage, as it were, or in the case of Bridgerton, the dad is actually dead. And so his portrait appears in scenes where the other family members are remembering him, talking about his legacy and that kind of thing. And it's a kind of visual cue and, and a material object as well that becomes part of that, that kind of landscape. That's very 18th century as well, isn't it? Like that's how portraits functioned at that time. They would You would sort of stand in the stead of the dead or missing or kind of your relative that's maybe gone to India as part of the East India Company expansion and you get sent a little portrait back so actually it's quite nice that the show sort of engages both with visually with that tradition but sort of and echoes the historical practice as well. Yeah absolutely and I think there's something interesting as well about a visual 
object visual work like that then being seen on screen as well it's like a sort of another layer of framing as well and, and, and a way of elevating its importance I think which is interesting another thing that kind of strikes me about how Bridgerton uses art and I don't I don't know what you what you think about this I think it's I can't work out whether it's a sort of intentional choice by the production um, whether it's a kind of research oversight, which I doubt very much. I think generally Bridgerton is very engaged. Um, they have a historical consultant or several historical consultants, and they're very interested in the history, even if historical accuracy isn't the main concern necessarily. So one of the most sort of striking paintings that appears on screen in it's mainly shown, I think, in season one of Bridgerton. The cameras kind of return to it again and again. And this is one of a pair of group portraits in the Bridgerton house that hung in the, the sort of grand staircase of, of the London house. And on one side, there's the group portrait of the Bridgerton sisters. And on the other, there's the portrait of the brothers. And what's really interesting about the brothers portrait is that it's almost an exact copy of a real life group portrait by Sir Joshua Reynolds of the aristocrats Henry Fane, Inigo Jones and Charles Blair. In the case of the Bridgerton version, the faces and bodies of the actors playing the Bridgerton brothers are kind of superimposed into, into the scene. And what's really interesting about the choice, I think, in doing that is that Obviously, Bridgerton itself is set in this kind of post-racial world where race is no longer considered to be um, a, an issue. And what is kind of fascinating in the inclusion of this Joshua Reynolds image is that the, the real life image, one of the men that's featured in the, in the painting is Charles Blair. And Blair himself was an incredibly wealthy aristocrat and his money came primarily from plantations in Jamaica and of course the labour of enslaved people. And so for an 18th century audience looking at the Reynolds version of this painting, these economies, these ways of encoding social and racial hierarchy into art would have been very legible to the audience in the 18th century looking at this work. And it's sort of fascinating that Bridgerton chooses this painting. Is this a way of overwriting this history and sort of changing the, the encoded messages um, of the original artwork? Or is it something that simply is overlooked or maybe not relevant in terms of the Bridgerton story in the Bridgerton world? I'd be really interested to know what other people think of that. But it's it's something that kind of stood out for me as being really interesting and potentially troublesome aspect of the show. I think it's really interesting, especially because is it in the it's I think it's towards the end of the second series where is an Anthony goes to visit painter brother Benedict at a kind of like salon party and they're all painting and kind of centered around all the canvases that you can see are centered around young black woman and I think from what I understand that she is kind of based on work by Marine Guimin Benoist, the artist who did a portrait of, um, I think it's called the Portrait of Madeleine, that's now at the Louvre. And it's showing a young uh, half-naked Black woman that was created in the beginning of the 19th century. And then they're sort of reinterpreting it here with Benedict and his sort of pals in this kind of Royal Academy salon-esque setting and she's she's showing with this was white material wrapped around her head to potentially signify a turban and she's holding I think a glass of wine or something and that you kind of capture that and you see them sketching her and charcoal and, and drawing her as well and 
I wonder if that's perhaps a way that they're trying to push this slightly a bit further. At the same time, they're subjectifying her body within this particular setting that Anthony walks into. So it's interesting that you say they are continually encoding things and slightly subverting the norm but at the same time playing playing with it into that as well and of course that was a woman artist at that time you know I think her aristocratic means it meant that she could uh, have that lifestyle at the beginning of the 19th century but I think even that salon room is very male dominated if I'm correct in remembering my Bridgerton scenes. I think it's really fascinating that even a show which is trying to construct this post-racial society is still knocking heads against all of these uh, issues. And I think that that actually tells us a lot still about both the society that it's trying to emulate in the 18th century and whether you can actually escape from these narratives um, and still the structure of society today, the, the threads that can get overlooked because of a, a maybe a lack of literacy about our colonial and racialized past and present. So it's really interesting that even a show that is trying so hard to construct this post-racial society is still really struggling um, to find ways to navigate that. Really interesting as well, Caroline, what you say about, in particular, the Royal Academy scene. So uh, Benedict Bridgerton, um, one of the brothers, obviously is training there as an artist. And even the very fact that we see artwork in the process of being made, or in this case, the remake, the literal remaking of existing 18th and early 19th century artworks that, that really exist um, today, is kind of fascinating that Bridgestone as a show is sort of drawing our attention to that, that remediation, that reworking of, of these works and their kind of original context and maybe some of the original encoded messages within them I think the the Royal Academy scenes more generally I mean I I really enjoy them and the show's kind of fascinating and slightly hilarious um, portrayal of the Academy as this kind of peripheral scruffy alternative institution that's kind of separate from elite British society and it seems to me to be a group of like five or six lads in an attic somewhere which is um I don't know maybe maybe not how how it would have been experienced at the time but I think it's very interesting this this focus on artworks being made and their their relationship with the aristocracy at the time. I'm also just thinking about the kind of elite culture that art is very much centered in within the series. And don't we learn towards the end of the series in season two that actually Anthony has bought Benedict's way into the Royal Academy. So even within this world, they're kind of showing art as being a space of creativity, of being a, perhaps a space of otherness. At least I felt that in the first series and throughout, but sometimes that those making practices, people can actually be themselves in those rooms and those spaces where this material where they're actually, you know, making art and ultimately it comes back to money. Well, I think that's so true, Caroline, and, and the issue of who gets to enjoy these spaces and who gets to be creative in them. And, you know, you talk about them as being a space of otherness and certainly they are to a certain extent in Bridgerton, but they're also still, um, as you previously mentioned, male-dominated, predominantly white spaces, whether that is or is not a concern within the Bridgerton universe. And something that really interests me in season two with the Benedict storyline is the artist's sitter relationship and how that's portrayed. And I think he ends up having a relationship with one of the women that he is painting, which, I mean, we see this all the time on screen. You have to think of 
um, films like Girl with a Pearl Earring or um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that there's often a kind of power dynamic between the artist and the sitter as it's shown on screen um, that usually transpires uh, or sort of transforms into being a sexual relationship of, of some kind. And in that case, Bridgerton's not particularly original, but it's kind of fascinating that it sets what is a, a fairly routine storyline of the artist's relationship within this broader conversation about creativity, who's being part of it. And in that way, it seemed, it felt to me quite innovative and like it was kind of broadening that conversation and what we might expect to see in terms of the portrayal of art and art being made uh, on screen. I, I think it does kind of extend that a little bit. In which case, maybe the Reynolds reference is sort of deliberate, right? Because if you're arguing that there's these sort of this complex reflection of power dynamics occurring through the way art is displayed and who is making art and who is represented, then maybe it is a kind of deliberate choice to sort of turn some of that relationship on its head. Because if you think about its relationship between the Royal Academy's relationship with these elite structures, right? That painting, that portrait of the three brothers, presumably was displayed in the Royal Academy and everyone in society would have viewed it. So there's a kind of absent sort of viewing dialogue that's happening that we don't get to see in the show but that directly connects the family with that space in an ongoing way which is interesting and actually mm. the show does reference later kind of theoretical questions around these power dynamics so it makes kind of a fairly oblique reference to I think it's the 1989 Gorilla Girls campaign about the Met um, only displaying the naked bodies of women and not female artists and there's a there's a scene in Bridgerton in which I think it's Eloise um, Bridgerton is discussing the just that essentially the portrayal of, of women as eroticized and sexualized objects on the canvas and to see that on screen again it feels very much like Bridgerton's directing our attention to how how we as the viewer are our gaze is implicated and how we how we already know how to see is it's a way of seeing that's been trained in a longer art history and an art history that has these implications in terms of power, in terms of equality or inequality, that that, that is something we carry around with us and we need to maybe be more aware of it when we're watching something like Bridgerton. And I think in that way it is, it is exploring these issues be, beyond and outside of the plot itself, I think. And actually, just because you mentioned... Eloise I don't know if you all spotted but she does have I think it's in her bedroom there's a, a portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft in the background so just in terms of kind of visual signifiers for that we can perhaps read into I mean absolutely Eloise is kind of this modern day feminist in the Regency era that we you know see every episode in Bridgerton and the fact that she's got this historical figure there and she's reading her work there's something really interesting there between I think the nature the relationship between the images that she's choosing to put onto her bedroom wall just like you know we might have done at her age as well. I think that leads us on to really interesting questions around as Maddie was saying visual and material literacies of viewers watching these kinds of shows and that ominous looming figure of um, historical accuracy, which obviously, as you said, Maddie, is not something that Bridgerton is aiming for and is indeed not really something that's necessarily possible or desirable. 
But I think that these ideas around material literacy, around visual literacy of the viewer, of the people constructing these shows is actually far more useful and far more applicable to a show like Bridgerton. And actually is how a lot of these more interesting concepts can be positioned on screen. Yes, and of course, um, historical accuracy and lack thereof has been one of the um, key kind of points around which a lot of the discussion of Bridgerton's visual material cultures have fixed upon. I know a lot of people who feel very strongly about some of the costuming, although I personally think it's quite interesting the way in which some of that that lack of historical accuracy is done in a deliberate way as a kind of plot device, like to visually signify the feathering tends this disjuncture from the society that they're supposed to be within, right? They dress in this sort of kind of hideous <laughs> and kind of over the top and it's too bright, it's too colourful, the styles are all wrong. And I think that although it, it is kind of visually arresting and, and uh, interesting, and wrong from a kind of critical perspective. Actually, I think it works really nicely as a plot device within the show. Um, but I know there's other kinds of um, historical accuracy issues that occur in the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, shocking. I am going to go back to ceramics briefly, but indulge me, if you will. Uh, there, interestingly, it was later shown, I think, through um, kind of clips and filming that actually in the Modiste's uh, shop, there is a vase full of flowers, which is actually a Bleak porcelain vase, which is interesting because Bleak porcelain was made in um, County Fermanagh in Ireland from the kind of late 1840s onwards as a type of pottery. But obviously that is, you know, a couple of decades after the point we're talking about with Bridgerton, but it was for a more middling market. So it would have been afforded, you know, could have been purchased by someone like the Modiste. But it's interesting that even something like that, where they've gone for clearly a slightly 19th century looking vase of a kind of correct sort of um, point in the market is not still not officially historically accurate because, you know, it's there several decades before it's actually produced. But I don't think anyone other than me will have found that interesting nor even noticed it. But um, yeah, for your uh, yeah, just for your pleasure. <laughs> I think this kind of temporal mix and match is really interesting and is something that we do see in the costumes as well, because, of course, again, bringing it back to the, the Featheringtons, Freya, they have this silhouette, um, the, the mother does, Lady Featherington, has this silhouette, which is far more reminiscent of kind of early 20th century Edwardian looks. So I think that that's something that Bridgerton does maybe self-consciously. It's bringing together these different periods as this way of signifying we are not in the actual real Regency. We are in this fantasy construction of the Regency. And uh, something that I've said before that I've got to say again because I quite like it is that Bridgerton is to the Regency what Game of Thrones is to the War of the Roses, right? It's kind of it's a fantastical reimagining. It is inspired by the past. It draws heavily from the past, but to make a new story. And I think that we can really see that coming through in the costumes. But there are still kind of leading back to those questions of um, material and visual literacy. There are still these elements that come through that are slightly more problematic. So, for example, the way that the show 
treats corsets, for example. And, and this isn't just Bridgerton's fault. This is something which has been happening for the, the entire history of cinema, basically. Like, think back to Gone with the Wind and that really iconic scene of Scarlett O'Hara being like tight laced into that corset and pulling against the bedpost. Kira Knightley oh. falling in the sea. Yes, yeah, exactly. Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's such a kind of uh, a long-standing trope, um, and we see this happen in Bridgerton as well. That these quite soft cotton corsets that do not compress the waist at all, or, or shouldn't, because you wouldn't see it under all of that kind of high-waisted Empire Line um, style gown are still presented as this thing that you must pull yourself into. Lady Featherington talks about her waist being the size of an orange when she was young, and that would just be completely pointless in a Regency dress. So we see this trope of the corset being trudged out again as this signifier of women's um, kind of oppression and that their bodies are being controlled by these horrible corsets that men are making them wear or, or at least that are being worn to make women look attractive to men in this very heteronormative um, relationship between gender and clothes. And this is always a huge frustration to me because this narrative comes from this hugely misogynistic late 19th century um, construction of a narrative by men, by male doctors, of corsets being the reason that they can't work out why you're ill. It's because of your corset, clearly. Um, you know, what this huge list of possible illnesses all get put down to the corset. And over the intervening years, we have, of course, seen all of those medical issues that were blamed on the corset be ticked off as actually coming from real medical, um, biological uh, kind of reasons. Nothing to do with the corset. Corsets are not these horrible torture instruments. And it's so disappointing, actually, to see period dramas professing to be feminist and inserting feminist points in the artwork in other kind of areas of the film, but completely going along with this very tired, very sexist trope around corsetry. And it's it's one of the things that disappointed me more about Bridgerton. Serena, do you think that we can kind of read Bridgerton's playing fast and loose, or not loose, but tight with corsets, as part of its kind of its its more its broader reliance on these kind of cultural touchstones or cu this cultural iconography that is recognizable to people today so whether it's a portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft or whether it's um it's a sort of revisiting of the artist-sitter relationship and the the kind of cliches on screen around that do you think it it can be viewed as as part of that or do you see it as a kind of a separate issue in that the rest of the show is trying to kind of to question these ideas and to challenge them and actually in the case of the corsets in particular it's actually perpetuating them rather than holding them up as something to be examined further. Yeah I think you're exactly right Maddie I think that it is taking this trope of the corset which it is using to communicate certain things it is relying upon the viewer's um, understanding of, of that as a cultural kind of touchstone but while it is as you say being more critical of some of those other elements it's playing with them a bit more it inserts the corset in this really unproblematic way it's it's exaggerating 
those myths in order to make a point that that shouldn't be there and it's not kind of um it's not interrogating why it's doing that it's just accepting a misogynistic myth as the truth and perpetuating that misogynistic myth and so I think that it's it's being used in the same way as many of those other other ideas it's sort of being deployed like that but then how it's actually being worked with and treated within the show isn't actually challenging viewers perceptions at all and I think that is an issue with Bridgerton in general right that a lot of the kind of playfulness and the playful the ways in which it treats some of these long-standing conceptions about the 18th century and the post-racial society for example there's a rejection of some of those things to an extent but I think by doing so sometimes they reinforce the same thing so like when we were talking earlier about um, the Royal Academy and having those men like crowded around that uh, the black woman's body and actually I think the treatment of the black body in Bridgerton is something of a kind of a, an issue in in a way I think like you know the objectification of the Duke of Hastings for example is problematic and, and is in part reinforced through kind of visual and material tricks I mean there was a really great piece by Trisha Matthews who talked about the Duke licking his spoon uh, with silver which was uh, a silver spoon um, with sugar on it and that, that kind of connection being so palpable right that the relationship between the enslaved body and the production of sugar during this period but then to have that completely elided and not discussed or acknowledged by the show is actually quite problematic and difficult um, as much as it's trying to sort of play with that trope and that stereotype it sort of doesn't really do the work of of really kind of uncovering it and, and bringing it to the viewer's attention properly. It's almost in some ways comes down to a question of how you treat the material culture that you're going to show on screen and how how far you take not only the the issue of historical accuracy but the sort of historical legacies of those objects and how you integrate them and challenge them on screen if at all and I think in some cases Bridgerton does really well with that and in other cases like you say Freya it really fails to do so in in a way that's quite disappointing and fairly serious. And of course part of the reason that so many feel that Bridgerton has a kind of responsibility to tell these stories in a careful and sensitive way and people do get incensed by issues around racial representation in the show or the lack of queer representation is in part because it's so popular I and mean, it's watched by millions of people it's constantly touted as Netflix's most popular show and so I think there is a real kind of sense in which what is shown as part of Bridgerton matters and it's not only about how history is constructed in the past but how we represent and tell those stories today and how they connect with future narratives too. One of the most interesting expansions of Bridgerton in this way is into the kind of digital sphere and I know we're going to get into maybe a bit of like Regency core and things like that but it strikes me that with Bridgerton in particular more so maybe than any other period drama because it's a show that is essentially about gossip and print media and the circulation of conversation and discussion and the news cycle that actually the way that it's expanded into social media in particular is really important and I think it kind of changes the at least the digital landscape and the sort of marketing landscape of these shows for the future so thinking about on Twitter for example how even before the show had aired on Netflix Netflix had created Bridgerton like a, a, its own Twitter account that was in the voice of Lady Whistledown and so it's an actual expansion of that that gossip and that voice 
into the real world in real time that people can have access to and interact with which I think is is really fascinating and kind of game changing actually and and really a very 18th century thing to do it's it's a sort of natural line of lineage that you can draw from a publication like Lady Whistledown in the Regency to the social media of today I think and didn't they do a thing where they were adding B the B motif into was it twitter if you clicked on it it became the b and that sort of become this symbol and we see in the second series you know why that is in particular but they're kind of creating their own branding in some slight way which yeah i don't know that i thought that was particularly interesting actually kind of having the emote you know entering into the visual coded world that we live in today with an emoji of a buzzing b every time you're doing something on bridgerton is something quite quite interesting about that and obviously thinking about those lineages um, from the 18th century to today celebrity comes out as a really key theme both in terms of the 18th century and how it's being reported by Lady Whistledown but obviously Bridgerton has made huge stars of its actors um, and so like Nicola Cochran for example she's you know hugely popular the recent star of Pat McGrath's campaign um, of associated cosmetics which go with the Bridgerton with the Bridgerton show and they have a kind of Regency-esque vibe probably quite a fast and loose Regency-esque vibe um, but they're packaged in sort of pink and pale blue um, kind of packaging and it has not probably Regency at all, kind of strings of pearls on it, and it's all very pretty and very expensive makeup. But actually, I think it's interesting to think about the ways in which um, Bridgerton has been commercialised, particularly, and how this notion of Regency core has expanded recently as well. I mean, I think we're at peak core at this point between kind of cottage core and Regency core and dark academia and whatever else we're kind of <laughs> crowded with at the moment. But, um, you know, that that resurgence of Empire Line gowns and, I mean, we saw it at the Met Gala, right, which was ostensibly about the Gilded Age, um, but actually everyone was just dressed as if they were a member of the Bridgerton cast, which was fun. And of course, another way that, that the kind of the product that is Bridgerton is used and misused in the real world is through things like TikTok videos and reels where there's footage of heritage sites that aren't necessarily the filming locations from the show. I mean, obviously, um, the show has doubled the fame of sites like Castle Howard, um, where uh, which stands in for, I think, the Duke of Hastings house, but also there's sites that are not associated with the show itself that are being set to the the soundtrack of um of Bridgerton on social media and I think there's something really interesting there I mean the, the relationship between period drama and heritage sites more generally is really fascinating and in recent years we've seen increasingly a sort of material intervention at museums um by production companies by artists or designers working with the show and thinking of something like um, To Walk Invisible, the show that was about the Brontes that aired on the BBC. And for that, the set designer, Grant Montgomery, created the bedroom of Bramwell Bronte. And it's still an installation at the Parsonage, I think even today, or certainly it was for, for a long period of time. And so there's a kind of an interconnecting between the sort of the world that we see on screen and the sites that provide this sort of backdrop often for these and actually that they're speaking to each other more and more and the lines between fantasy and reality are becoming increasingly blurred sometimes very productively I don't necessarily have a problem with it um, but I think that the sort of material implications of that and the fact that 
objects from shows that are increasingly being accessioned into the collections of these sites is really interesting. And kind of building both on your points about place and heritage sites, Maddie, and also Caroline's point earlier about the bee, is um, another piece of iconography from Bridgerton is obviously the wisteria that's all over the front of Bridgerton House, no matter the time of year, it's always wisteria flowering. And I recently went to Bath, which is obviously World Heritage Site and um, and also the location for where the Modiste uh, shop in Bridgerton is filmed, just the, the exterior shots. But now all over Bath, so many shops have covered their frontages with plastic wisteria. And they're obviously trying to really, really push this connection with the show in the same way as we see like Harry Potter down the shambles in York, even though York doesn't really have a connection to Harry Potter. But this kind of recognition of the commercialised uh, possibilities of linking into the show. And even the place where the Modiste is filmed is a cafe, but inside they've got a plethora of souvenirs and tote bags with Bridgerton things on um, that sort of taken over half of the front um, portion of that shop. So there's really this kind of idea that these places can really commercialise on these shows which is actually a really interesting extra um, outcome of period dramas is that they do contribute to the commercial lives of the heritage sites where they are filmed beyond the sort of initial filming fee and are actually contributing therefore to the upkeep of those spaces to how those spaces are interpreted to the money that those sites have to spend on curators and historians to develop the stories around those properties so there's this kind of knock-on effect while this commercialization might seem a little bit sort of capitalist and ah at first it's got this knock-on historical research impact yeah it's interesting because so often in heritage studies or country house studies especially at least the last decade you always hear the phrase or read the phrase the Downton Abbey effect and that's kind of the High Clare Castle where Downton Abbey has been set for you know I don't know, what are we on like film number three at this point? Who knows? And many series and things. Um, but actually, I think we're kind of at this turning point of the Bridgerton effect, which because of the digital landscape and the social media ramifications, as well as Maddie pointed out earlier, you have just, it's aimed at an even more, you know, a younger generation as well in many ways that are kind of latching onto it. But I do think your point about the positives that come through this, particularly in terms of the rethinking or reanimating these historic spaces is really interesting. And actually, I recently went to Ranger's house a couple of weeks ago. And one of the questions when we were coming in from the guide was, oh, have you come because you saw it on Bridgerton? At that point, you know, actually, no, I wanted to you know, see the collection. But it's interesting that clearly that is something that is being used very much within their kind of marketing. And that kind of commodified culture that comes from this is yeah interesting something that strikes me from what you've said there Caroline and from what Serena said is that the actual set some of the set designs of Bridgerton are being reproduced in locations where filming hasn't taken place and by people who aren't part of the production team itself and there's really interesting questions there and I think as you say because the Bridgerton effect is like in full swing and it, I think it's only going to grow and probably take over from the Downton Abbey legacy that actually the I think questions about collaboration and intellectual and creative property and how the show can be distinguished from the sort of the vast juggernaut that is the commercialism around it if it's possible to distinguish it and, and if 
those boundaries between collaboration and and the sort of the reproduction of that property in in whatever um in whatever way i think will become more urgent and probably i don't know whether it'll, they'll become more clearly defined or whether they'll become even more blurred i don't know but i think that'll be really interesting to see how that plays out I think this continuing re-representation of the Bridgerton Regency world is really something, as you say, I think we're just kind of touching the surface on at this point. I recently went to, and I think Serena did as well, the Secret Cinema Bridgerton Ball. So Secret Cinema, for those of you who don't know, is a sort of immersive cinema experience. And they've done Blade Runner and James Bond and Romeo and Juliet and this kind of, they create a world where you know you're fully immersed everyone dresses up and for Bridgerton I mean I spoke with their performance director Mara Stafford when they were in the process of really trying to create this you know their secret cinema interpretation of the Bridgerton world and one of the things that she was very keen to do was kind of create particular kind of visual markers that signified the world through Bridgerton that people would recognize as they or everyone kind of gets dressed up everyone was you know in Regency gear you know question marks around historical accuracy but there were a lot of feathers but you walk into the main when you walked into the main bit it was covered in wisteria hanging down there was a live band playing the music from the show to kind of create that you know bring you straight into this world and then there are sort of particular rooms that were picked out and I thought it was quite interesting so they had the ballroom picked out with a kind of grand staircase at the back of the room where the queen sat every so often she processed off and you had to bow and you were taught how to curtsy and how you would address the queen and things and then there were two other rooms one which was um, the boxing ring uh where kind of will mondrich the key boxer in the in the series was you know hosting various matches and there was kind of gambling and music happening and then there was a painter's salon with where you could like draw there was chalk and charcoal and there were like you could like lie on a you know plush cushioned kind of chair and recreate you know moments from the show and it's interesting what they did try to do it was very much using Bridgerton as a historical reference point using that world but very much for the 21st century audience as well and even though there are certain things they were trying to do they still had kind of like loaded french fries <laughs> the, the, you know the food didn't you know wasn't macaron or anything it wasn't trying to create a kind of world so there's always this disconnection I think the more we go into this go down this path of trying to recreate things based on something which is in itself already a visual material representation of a particular world from a very particular viewpoint actually. Mm, yeah uh, I mean I really enjoyed the secret cinema Bridgerton um, it was great fun um, and I think that those three rooms that you described Caroline actually really reflect the worlds of the show really well because we're seeing these separated spheres if you like of society that are really kind of based upon these different types of space so I thought it was really interesting how that was recognized and replicated in the secret cinema experience um, the other thing that I really noticed was you mentioned that we all had to dress up and as you can imagine my dress was relatively regency I, I was I went all out um, and the majority of people there were wearing either one or two dresses from ASOS that were particularly Regency core, or were wearing bridesmaids dresses, which is something that I found fascinating because 
when you're a bridesmaid, it's obviously um, a very, very rare opportunity in your life to wear a garment which is super fancy. It's probably like, other than maybe if you get married, like your wedding dress, or if <laughs> if you're very rich and a celebrity and go to the Met Gala, probably going to be one of the fanciest dresses you ever wear. So it was interesting to me that part of the fantasy of going to the secret cinema is actually the opportunity to wear that kind of dress and to kind of inhabit this elite, luxurious space. Um, and that there's a kind of escapism that's part of that, an escapism and an aspiration to this kind of very luxurious um, life. For full disclosure, I should say I did wear a bridesmaid's dress to <laughs> Secret Cinema, which was long and floaty and pink, but nonetheless a bridesmaid's dress. So. Were you inhabiting your elitist escape? I don't know. I mean, I was trying to, I think, but um, there was no corset. So, you know, clearly it wasn't authentic. I, I could breathe fine. <laughs> But that's kind of like it is the equivalent, right? In like not everybody's gonna go and get a Regency dress or like yeah, have access to a Regency dress. So a bridesmaid's dress is the kind of equivalent. I you have nice bridesmaid's dresses. My though mine was kind of brown satin, and if I never had to wear it again, it would be too soon. So. Oh my god. <laughs> I suppose as well, bridesmaids' dresses, like sartorially speaking, are kind of part of that iconography of romance and marriage more generally and again that's the fact that Bridgerton is it's kind of leaning on a broader genre of romance um, more generally and so in that context it's kind of not surprising that people would bring their own bridesmaids dresses. I mean I think all that's left to ask is which one of us would be Lady Whistledown. I think we all know the answer Freya. Is <coughs> I mean, I really want to be Eloise, but I don't know if I am Eloise. I just want to embody Eloise. <laughs> yes, I don't know. I feel slightly offended that I've been nominated as Lady Whistledown, but that is probably a reflection of my spending too much time on Twitter. So that's <laughs> and that's the end of our Bridgerton episode. And join us soon for more episodes.